This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading the Eye on Education podcast from the 20th of May. On the programme today, we looked at how to get kids enthusiastic about STEM subjects. We need to know because there's a severe shortage of engineers, but how can we do it? We tracked down solutions with an engineering professor and a teacher. Plus, as a global study shows that one-fifth of children have anxiety symptoms that are clinically elevated since the pandemic, we found out whether it's a problem here in the UAE and what we can do with it. We also spoke to several parents who told us exactly how and why their children are struggling with anxiety. Plus, we spoke to the man who's won a $1 million prize as part of the Arab Coders Initiative in Dubai. And we found out about the youth takeover at the Jamil Arts Centre. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and welcome to our special segment. It is Eye on Education. It's the show that we do every Friday from 11 until 1 and it is our chance to put the spotlight on all the education headlines from the week. And there's been a lot going on this week. Uh, We have got a couple of hot topics to discuss uh, on the programme. We're going to be talking about the fact that uh, the... uh, A UK body for engineers says that there aren't enough engineers coming up through the school system. So we're going to find out uh, what we can do about that, how we can encourage our kids to get into STEM subjects. We're also discussing the fact that one in five children have apparently struggled with anxiety since the pandemic. We are taking your calls on that. So please do get in touch at 4001 uh, or you can message us 04871 We're trying to find out whether that is a problem that... uh, parents and children are experiencing here in the United Arab Emirates as well. I'm joined in the studio by Zina Zalamea. Hello. Hi, Georgia. How are you? I'm very well indeed. And you've been keeping us up to date with all the education headlines that have been going on this week. You sort of make a file and you make sure we keep track of all of them, not least uh, one that's coming out of the UK, that girls see physics for white men only. Is I mean, what? That is so bizarre. When I read that headline and we were both discussing it, and I am not familiar with this phenomenon, but apparently, according to the BBC, girls do not take physics at A-level because they think the subject is only for white boys. And uh, that's what MPs in the UK have been told. No mention of female scientists in the national curriculum contributes to the message society gives to discourage girls from picking physics. Uh, That's according to leading physicist uh, Professor Dame Athene Donald. And if you're black or if you're a woman, you don't see yourself fitting in. That's what she said. And uh, last year in 2021, uh, nearly a fourth or 23 percent of physics A-level entrants were female. Uh, That's a slight increase in previous years. But as we can both agree, not enough, Georgia. Absolutely not. Yes, uh, Professor Donald, who's from the University of Cambridge, told the Common Science and Technology Committee in the UK that it was relevant that most of the images that one sees of scientists and physicists are white males. And oddly enough, if you close your eyes now and imagine what you think a physicist looks like, I'm imagining a white male mad professor, a bit like the guy from Back to the Future. I'm showing my age now. Did you even see Back to the Future? You I did, yeah, yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. Well, yeah, okay. So, <laughs> in a lab gown. In a, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, the suggestion is that teachers should try to actively counter those messages from wider society that may be discouraging girls and children belonging to ethnic minorities from taking certain subjects. Really interesting topic and definitely something that we will be addressing in our conversation about STEM subjects in just a few minutes' time. Yeah, so here in the Gulf region, more needs to be done. In the UAE in particular, the government is working on it. I think it's one of the United Nations SDGs, or Sustainable Development Goals, to get women into STEM subjects. Now, in February, the government launched uh, this thing called Building Future Talents. It's an initiative uh, to build 10,000 UAE public school female students' skills in the field, in the STEM subjects, so science, technology, engineering, and maths. And it's really based on introducing an interactive smart application. Uh, it involves 450 activities So, in on 21st century skills. I have yet to know what that means, but uh, certainly it is a big thing because more than 15 elite universities and educational institutions are participating. Uh, they include NASA, UC Berkeley, UPenn, and 
international groups like the World Economic Forum and the UNESCO. So it's huge. I could very quickly get quite facile on a Friday afternoon talking about what counts as a 21st century skill. (laughs) But I'm not going to because that is a serious conversation about what our children need to be learning and the life skills that they're going to need going forward. I'm not going to talk about TikTok or the ability to dance or or lip sync. Stop. No. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Moving me uh, on to a slightly more serious topic. Uh, Not least, it's actually something that we've been wanting to cover on the program for some time, but the story does keep on changing. Uh, We mostly, we get slightly disappointing news reports out of Afghanistan, but uh, we have actually had a positive report uh, coming out of CNN this week. Am I right, Z? Yes, we were watching this interview uh, with a senior Taliban official. The interview was conducted by Christiane Amanpour in Kabul. She's been given access uh, to the senior Taliban official named uh, Sirajuddin Haqqani, and uh, he's repeated the group's uh, as yet unfulfilled pledge to allow girls back into high school. So there is that hope, and And he said there would be good news soon. Uh, But when? We don't know yet. Okay. meanwhile, in China, uh, international schools there have apparently been hit by an exodus of teachers who are struggling with those COVID-19 curbs. Of course, we've been covering this story as well on the agenda for some time. The fact that Shanghai has now been under lockdown of some sort for, oh, my goodness, six weeks. Exactly. It's not surprising. You know, foreign student enrollments are dropping. Foreign families are leaving. Hundreds of international uh, teachers are exiting because of the pandemic rules. Uh, And the situation is prompting international schools as well uh, to uh, basically, you know, stop operations. Now, some find their survival is now on the line, while the quality of education stands to suffer in the long run. So about 40 percent of teachers will leave mainland jobs this year, up from 30 percent last year and 15 percent before the pandemic. And this may have an impact on the region. We have a demand for teachers here. So I'm guessing a lot of them will be seeing this part of the world as an option to teach. That is very interesting. Of course, as Singapore also, uh, the the population of Singapore is expanding. I've heard of a lot of teachers, a lot of families, expat families, leaving, for example, Hong Kong to mm-hmm. go to Singapore. Apparently, it's almost impossible to get a school place in Singapore at the moment because so many people have made that move. I suppose if you want to stay in Asia and you live in Hong Kong, Singapore would be a natural jump hop skip and a jump closer to china yeah yeah Uh, right okay so flying for as many as 20 hours graduates from nyu abu dhabi's class of 2020 and 2021 have traveled all around the world from the uae to attend a commencement ceremony at new york's yankee stadium how amazing and there was a pretty important pretty important guest there as well, wasn't there, Z? Yes. I mean, you know, these students have not had a commencement ceremony in two years because of the pandemic and just flying to New York to see none other than Taylor Swift giving the commencement speech. That's pretty awesome. That's got to be a milestone for them. Taylor Swift received an honorary doctorate degree from NYU. It really is. We're dancing in the studio to that. I'm prepping my mum dancing because I'm ready to dance to Fat Boy Slim tonight. <laughs> Which Dane Spindles from the ARNU Centre is mocking. He you keeps on for sending doing. me pictures of the lose. Oh gosh, stop. <laughs> okay, let's reel you back into the Taylor Swift topic. The singer and songwriter gave an inspirational speech for the class of 22 at the famed Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. So NYU students, both from there and the Abu Dhabi campus, were all watching her live and she shared some life hacks. The first one, I guess, can be summed up as don't worry about things that ultimately don't matter to you. Life can be heavy especially if you try to carry it all at once. Part of growing up and moving into new chapters of your life is about catch and release, knowing what things to keep and what things to release. You can't carry all things, all grudges, all updates on your ex, all enviable promotions your school bully got at the hedge fund his uncle started. Decide what is yours to hold and let the rest go. 
Oftentimes, the good things in your life are lighter anyway, so there's more room for them. One toxic relationship can outweigh so many wonderful, simple joys. You get to pick what your life has time and room for. You Be know discerning. It's... Be discerning. Be discerning. I interrupted her. I'm so sorry. I interrupted you because I was so enthusiastic to tell you that my ex isn't on Facebook or Instagram, so I can't stalk him. It's very disappointing. That's probably for the best. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. What else did she have to well, say? Well, the second life hack uh, she shared with the NYU graduates is um, being excited about something is not uncool. In fact, it is the opposite. I'm a big advocate for not hiding your enthusiasm for things. It seems to me that there is a false stigma around eagerness in our culture of unbothered ambivalence. This outlook perpetuates the idea that it's not cool to want it. The people who don't try are fundamentally more chic than people who do. And I wouldn't know because I've been a lot of things, but I've never been an expert on chic, but I'm the one who's up here, so you have to listen to me when I say this. Never be ashamed of trying. Effortlessness is a myth. The people who wanted it the least were the ones I wanted to date and be friends with in high school. The people who want it the most are the people I now hire to work for my company. So those are just two live hacks that Taylor Swift shared with a class of 22 really lucky students at the Yankee Stadium. So I guess we're asking, what did you wish you knew uh, before you're gra- you graduated from college or uni? Lots of students listening right now. It's the school run. Lots of parents as well. Share some of your life hacks with them. How about you, Georgia? Well, you know, you gave me due warning on this. Like you mentioned it first thing this morning that you'd be asking me, what do I wish I knew before I graduated from college or university? I suppose I wish I knew that it was, it takes time. That you will get what you want, but it takes time. I think you sort of expect when you graduate, you expect it's going to all happen for you within the next two or three years. Mm -hmm. And it just definitely doesn't. It takes about 20 but it does happen. You do get there. Yeah. There's a part in a Taylor's, Taylor Swift's speech about trying, trying, trying as many times until you get what you want. So uh, spot on. My take is, my takeaway is life is expensive because everything was handed to me during uni. You know, my mom paid my tuition fees, etc. But when I actually started working and I'm having to pay for, I don't know, taxi fares and meals. Um, yeah, I just... I just thought I would be able to save enough, you know, save money as soon as I started working. That was not the case. It took years as well. Um, and the other thing, I guess, is what you study is not exactly something that you would end up doing in life and that yes. would make you happy. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I did English literature. That I mean, it, it got me to, you know, got me into journalism. But English literature is quite ephemeral in, in the way like in no one's no one's going to say so. Great expectations. I mean, what a book. Like, literally, it just doesn't come up after you leave uni. Doesn't a lot come of up. English literature teachers probably listening to you and uh, disagree. <laughs> we can discuss great. I'm happy to sit down and discuss Dickens with anyone who's up to talk to me about it. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and welcome back. Yes, we are now turning our attention to one of the hot topics uh, from this week, which is the fact that engineering and technology companies in the UAE are struggling to find applicants with the right technical skills. That's according to the UK-based Institution of Engineering and Technology, who found that 93% of UAE engineering employers found it difficult to recruit new staff last year. The survey also found that artificial intelligence will be the UAE most important industry over the next 10 years. That came ahead of construction, electronics, aerospace, design engineering and cyber security. But there are concerns that educators are not preparing sufficient pupils for these future jobs. Now, earlier I spoke to a spokesperson from the UK-based Institution of Engineering and Technology. She's called Danielle George. She's a professor of radio frequency engineering and also vice dean of the Faculty of Science and Engineering at the Victoria 
Victoria University of Manchester in the UK. And I asked her whether she was surprised by the results of this survey. Yes, I was really surprised, actually. The IET have been running the skills survey for the, for the past 17 years. This year, we joined forces with market researchers and interviewed engineers and senior decision makers in the UAE in companies that employ engineers. And it was really interesting because during 2021, the majority of them struggled to fill vacancies and quite a lot of those companies as well say they were also struggling to find applicants with the right technical skills as well. I mean, that's really surprising for the United Arab Emirates, partly because the market here is very buoyant. It was a very attractive place to be in 2021 compared to the rest of the world. So you get a sense that maybe this is really quite a a global shortage in the developed world. What do you think is causing the problem? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, engineers have throughout the ages have have shaped the way we live today. And our profession is dedicated to that advancement of knowledge. And, you know, the IET is very proud to play a pivotal role in, in trying to unite forces across industry. And I think the more we do that, the better. I think it's really great that the UAE have identified a role for engineers in their 2071 Centellian plan. And I think that that's going to be a really, really important part of making sure we've got engineers in the future uh, globally, you know, not just in the UAE, but globally. We need people to be enthused about engineering. We need people to know about what those global challenges are. We need them to be passionate about wanting to solve them. And we all need to work together. So that's schools, that's industry, that's government. Globally, we need to work together on that. I suppose if you go back to basics, the first thing you need to do is encourage pupils, young pupils, to continue to do the maths, the physics, the chemistry, you know, those types of subjects at school. Do you think that Teachers are failing to encourage boys and girls into STEM education subjects. I don't think it's a teacher failure. I think it's more of an educationist system failure in a way. I I don't think we make it as exciting as it could be. And it's, I mean, and you're right, Georgie, you know, it's an absolute fundamental thing in building the future engineers is we've got to get the education right we need young people to know that they can change the world. They they need to be passionate about what those challenges are. And, and we need to do that from a really young age. You know, I have a seven-year-old daughter. I want her to be knowing about what those global challenges are. I want her to be thinking about it when she's doing her, her design work, even at infant school. I think part of it is many engineers don't see it as part of their role to engage and infuse that next generation of engineers. And if we're not out helping teachers, helping parents, you know, they are the influencers of of our next generation of engineers. We need to be out there telling them how great engineering is and showing them that their children can just be steps away from solving those biggest challenges we're all facing. It should be part of our DNA as an engineer and a trusted and qualified subject expert to go out and share our passions. Then hopefully people, younger people will get on board with that passion and they'll want to do the same thing in the future. So uh, here in the United Arab Emirates, they have this amazing space program, which is unexpected for such a small country. And I know that that's one of the ways in which the government is keen to encourage children to get into STEM through space because it is quite sexy and fun. Um, Now, you mentioned there your daughter, and I know that potentially one of the problems why we don't have enough engineers is because not enough girls, not enough women are going Mm. into STEM subjects. And that automatically, you know, cuts your populace in half effectively. Do you think there is a way in which we can make these STEM subjects more interesting to girls? Because I can't imagine in schools that there's still a sort of bias that girls shouldn't be doing these subjects. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. If you, if you look at the stats, you see that at primary school, infant schools, junior schools, it's pretty much 50-50 when you sort of survey children about maths or science or, you know, they don't really know the word engineering, which is something we need to work on, but, but certainly maths and science, you know, they know what it is and it's 50-50. And then the pipeline gets really leaky. So as they go into secondary school, high schools, we start to lose girls there. And I think I think that is changing now. I think certainly in the UK, we've got an awful lot to do. There is a huge gender gap. You know, it's just women make up 16 and a half percent of those working in engineering. Luckily, it doesn't seem to be such a big issue in the UAE. Um, I think the UAE is ahead of many countries when it comes to recruiting female engineers. And I think part of that is due to what they've done. It's taken decades to do. It's a long burn, this. But they've, they've worked really well at trying to attract female graduates into the sector. And I think that's got to start with 
the early pipeline of making sure that when when all children think anything is possible and their imagination runs away with them and they think they can literally build a new world keep that engineering sort of habits of mind in there and keep that passion so that the the pipeline doesn't become as leaky in the future. So as you can imagine, in my profession, I started off my career as an arts student. I did English, French, history, German. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I didn't do things like maths because I just found it really difficult. And, and I just wonder whether the truth of it is the reason why fewer people go into learning STEM subjects is because, frankly, they're harder to learn. Mm. They're difficult. I mean, they are difficult. You're right. I certainly didn't find it easy. You know, I had to work really hard. I did maths, physics, chemistry at A-level and I found it hard and I had to work really hard. But what I had, which is something my parents and my teachers gave me, was was confidence to just to try things and confidence to fail as I went. And it's really important. And that's another sort of habit of mind of an engineer. You have to fail along the way and you have to be OK with that. You know, it's part of innovating is failing along the way. And I think there's a confidence thing when it comes to engineers and the maths and the sciences. And maybe that does come from the parents and the teachers sometimes as well. You know, I hear even my daughter's friends' parents sort of say, oh, yeah, maths is really hard. And you're like, well, but you're, you're saying that in front of your child. You're giving your child that idea that maths is really hard. That's why I think working with teachers and parents, carers is really, really important. Because, you know, if you think about something like baking, you know, we're, we're all really happy. We get our son or daughters and we might bake on a Saturday afternoon. And we might bake some muffins or something. And if they're a bit rubbish or they're burnt or you know, do we mind? Well, no, not really, because we've we've done sort of follow the instructions and we've done something together. We've made something together and it's just really good. Now replace the muffins with other things that you might find in the house, but they're more like electronics. Would the parents have as much confidence just to try it? And if it if it's a bit burnt at the end, does it matter? Well, no, it doesn't matter. But the parents don't have the confidence to, to actually try something different like that. So a lot of it is about the confidence, not only for the children, but for the influences of those children as well. And then I suppose if we look at the teachers, do you think that these subjects are harder to teach in a creative way and in the framework of a school day? I don't think they are. I don't think we do it very well now, but actually I think we could be much more creative and just embed it, you know, in what we're doing. Again, my my daughter, they've been learning about under the sea stuff, you know, so lots of stuff about different countries and then the sea that surrounds them. and, And you could bring in so much engineering into that. When you're talking about geography, you could bring engineering into that. You could talk about bioengineering you could talk about all of the marine engineering you know there's so much that you could embed in subjects that are already happening so it's not about trying to do more because teachers do so much it's trying to just embed engineering and those principles of engineering into the other things that they're doing. Danielle George there, Professor of Radio Frequency Engineering and the Vice Dean of the Faculty of Science Engineering at the Victoria University of Manchester in the UK. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there, welcome back. Now, a poll by the Institution of Engineering and Technology has found that 93% of UAE engineering employers found it difficult to recruit new staff last year. And another UK survey shows that children believe physics is for old men. That's a report that came out of the the BBC. And the suggestion is that girls do not take physics A-level because they think the subject is only for white boys. Uh, MPs uh, at in the UK were told that Uh, and ultimately it does seem to translate into the statistics because in 2021 in the UK only 23% of physics A-level entrants were female. Now a picture is emerging of a problem around children learning STEM subjects but when does that issue start? Uh, A little earlier I spoke to Becky Bennett, she's an assistant head of maths for prep at Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, she's also the assistant head head. Uh, And I I asked her earlier whether she noticed children start to prefer certain subjects from a young age. Personally, I don't think there is. I've got a four-year-old. She absolutely loves coming to school. And the stories I hear back from her most days are varied lessons. Here at RGS, we tailor our learning to the individuals in class. 
So you'll see a real broad balanced curriculum for all of the pupils. So all of our children learn an instrument, they all learn a language, they are outdoor learning, indoor learning. There's that real mix and buzz around the day. So each day something new and exciting will happen. And I think instilling that sort of excitement is what makes the learning take place and the children have that like love of learning. Growth mindset is my other thing in terms of, you know, there are some things which are tricky in life and you'll always hear me saying like, you can't do it yet. What do we need to do in order to get to where we need to be? And trying to sort of instill that into children so that they don't have that fear of I can't do this or I'm not good at this. And as a parent and a teacher, allowing children to make mistakes and learn from them and realising that there's nothing wrong with making a mistake. So in our previous interview with Danielle George, who's a professor of radio frequency engineering, she said that in the field of STEM subjects, you get this leakage as the children get older. Have you seen that leakage? And at what age do you think it starts to happen? So, for example, in the primary education sector, I think the children just love everything you teach them. They are enthused. They are excited. You only have to walk past our science lab when Mr. Creel, our science teacher, is doing an experiment and there's sort of steam coming out and whizzing pops and bangs to allow the children that experience of like, you know, science can be fun. I think in sometimes, you know, I know when I was back at school doing the theory aspects of it, you know, it is tough and you have to learn lots of knowledge and facts, but it's about how you tailor the lessons to make them want to learn more. Things that I think are really, really great out here is just the aspect of, you know, role models. And I think in the last few years, the literary authors have really sort of tapped that market. So, for example, like the books by Little People, Big Dreams with Maria Vergara. She does Florence Nightingale, she's done David Attenborough, a mixture of girls and boys, but the children absolutely love them. The children in year two here at RGS have been learning about Nora Al-Matrushi, the Emirati female that's going on the space programme. And they're sort of coming up with comments of like, well, I could do that when I'm older. And I'm like, yep, absolutely you can if you'd like to. Like, you've got to dream big, you've got to aim high. So I remember at school when I... When I was in primary school, there did seem to be a lean towards the girls liking the arty subjects and the boys liking the maths and science subjects. Now, am I a complete dinosaur or does that still slightly happen in schools? Not that I've noticed. I think it's about what you put out for the children to explore and learn with. So in terms of that hands-on experience, as educators, you've got to be really careful that there isn't that sort of the girls can do this, the boys can do this. And it creeps in from an early age. You know, we were really, really conscious when we were bringing up our daughter to make sure that we had that gender bias in terms of there there wasn't one. So there was train tracks, there was cars, there was dolls. Slowly, somehow it creeps in. And so we're in that sort of Barbie stage massively. But we try and ground the pupils to sort of make sure that they have that opportunity to explore all of the different subjects equally and encourage them to enjoy them. So our range of ECA is, is phenomenal. Our science club has more girls in it than boys. We have coding club. Again, lots of girls attending that. Bricks for kids. There's no real sway for the boys or the girls. And the same with our sports clubs. There's a real mix of girls doing football and boys doing football and girls doing rugby. It's really interesting to hear there about how you can sort of overcome biases. I wonder, do you think teaching techniques need to change to encourage girls to stick with STEM subjects? So for me, being primary based, I don't see it in primary. All of the children love everything. And I think as educators, that's your role to sort of enthuse the children to be excited, to be motivated to learn, to collaborate together and about those life skills that will fit any job as they grow older, um, whether they choose to choose engineering or whether they choose to go into medicine or whether they choose to go into sort of construction or, you know, many of the other fields. I think it's about those skills that we set them up to be able to be diverse and be able to choose the job path that they want to and in terms of the UAE things like the Oli Oli Museum and the Museum of the Future an expo was amazing for inspiring children as to you know dreaming big and and being able to be who you want to be like one of our tour guides was an engineering student and you know the children at lunchtime were chatting to her about her sort of degree and they were like wow like that whole sort of awe and wonder moment that they have is what we need to sort of tap into and sort of get men, women into schools to sort of give those talks. You know, 
speaking to someone on the space program about how they got there some of the interviews we watched with Nora how she's come from where she's come from and got to where she has been it's through hard work and effort but equally like family backing school backing her teachers the world is our oyster Becky Bennett there assistant principal and head of maths for prep at Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai this is Eye on Education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai hello there and welcome back to our special program Eye on Education this is our opportunity to put the spotlight on all of those top schools stories that have come through over the last few days Uh, one story that caught both mine and Zena's attention is the fact that one fifth of children world Worldwide have apparently experienced anxiety symptoms that are clinically elevated or worse than what is considered normal. That's according to a survey published in JAMA Pediatrics, uh, and it actually referred to 2021. Uh, that document is a monthly peer-reviewed medical journal that's published by the American Medical Association, but it was a global study. Meanwhile, in the US specifically, 9.4% of children aged 3 to 17, that's about 5.8 million of them, have had diagnosed anxiety between 2016 and 2019. So that's before the pandemic kicked off. And that's according to the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Anecdotally, it also does appear to be a problem for some children here in the United Arab Emirates. Harry is a dad of two, and he got in touch to tell us about his younger son. During the pandemic, we've seen less effects with our eldest son, who is nine, and he seems to have come out of it all right. Our youngest son, who is three, he certainly feels that he is very much a home person. And I think this is on the result of being at home for so much time that he's a bit like a homing pigeon. He just wants to be at home and that's his happy place. He's not as used to being out and about and visiting friends. And so whenever we go away, he goes, I just want to go home. Um, And I very much think this is linked to time at home during the pandemic. And that is his safe place. Meanwhile, Pragati reached out to say that her sibling is also suffering from anxiety, something she just didn't have when she was a teen. Unfortunately, I have seen anxiety in my younger sister. She's a teenager. She's in year 10. She's about 14 years old. Not only are kids socially awkward, but because their generation has come on social media so quickly, and has been exposed to all these expectations, Photoshop and face tuning that happens on social media, that they don't necessarily feel perfect in their own bodies or in their own personalities, especially in school, being also influenced from international series or watching Netflix a lot and seeing how kids in high school behave. Not all kids in high school can be sweet. High school can be quite tough. So I feel like this generation is exposed to all that we ultimately get exposed to, but so many years before us. Lucinda got in touch with us. Now, she's a life coach, and she says one thing that is causing teens' anxiety is is cancel culture. There is now a really pronounced pressure on teens, which is adding to the teen anxiety at large of the cancel culture element, the necessity to appear pro on any kind of tricky stance. Children are keeping silent on certain issues, then they are accused of hate. I don't know what the right way to call it is, but basically it seems that unless you are very vocal on something, you are accused of being against it, which is a real added pressure for teenagers because a lot of teenagers are still very much trying to figure out who they are and what they're about. And so this pressure to be vocally supportive of every different um, issue and trend, it does add up to a certain amount of anxiety and sort of peer pressure. Really interesting comments there from parents of of children of very different ages. Uh, And there's a lot to unpick there. It makes me realise how lucky I've been with my boys. I'm quite conscious that it's 10 past 12, so they might be listening to the radio now. Uh, But they're aged nine and seven. And certainly I haven't seen any symptoms of anxiety in them. 
I would say that uh, my husband and I were very, very careful to not let them get too worried by COVID-19. Ultimately, we reiterated the message that children don't catch COVID that well that they do obviously they do catch COVID but they don't you know there's no chance of them really dying of it or or really struggling with it so they were never worried about the pandemic itself and also we we try to keep things as normal as possible at home I think we were lucky with their age as well I think they were just at that age where uh, distraction was easier and sort of maybe life is a bit simpler you don't look necessary outside the boundaries of your own home Uh, but joining me now to give you a slightly more professional opinion and see who we can turn to for some advice uh, is Dr Hanine Gerard. Now she is Head of Early Intervention and Child Psychology at the Cambridge Medical Centre. Joining me now on Microsoft Teams, Dr Gerard, how are you? Good afternoon. I'm very well, thank you. How did you like my pop psychology there about my children? <laughs> no, you're actually, it's not. It's You're actually on point. The thing is that... Um, children have received so many messages from the from in their environment that the world is not safe and something bad is about to happen at any second now this will really cause their amygdala which is the alarm system to be uh, on the whole time and will cause anxiety as adults we know how to generate or how to kind of identify when we need to to be concerned or worried and when we need to you know turn it off and things are fine but as kids they don't if their own parents are saying th- uh, that there's something to be scared of if their parents are scared then they would inevitably be so your stance with your children is actually a really healthy one you follow the regulations and the rules but you didn't panic about it which is very important you role modeled um, uh, your own kind of emotional regulation skills to your kids okay i'm going to claim that as a personal victory <laughs> there are so few in my parenting career that, that i'm going to absorb that one with joy uh, i mean tell me from your experience you know you're a, you're an eminent professional you've been working in the region for a while have you noticed uh, an increase in children suffering from anxiety since the pandemic? It's, um, it's been really sad, actually, um, seeing the, the amount of, of cases referred to us. I would say, um, I, I mean, I, we didn't do any research, but I would say there's a three to four fold increase in the number of referrals wow. um, to us. Uh, not only for cases of anxiety, but also for cases of developmental delays, speech delays, um, a different kind of issues in learning, because children have been had had such inconsistent learning in the classroom. Of course, anxiety is the predominant one because children have had so much stress because. As parents, we've had so much stress. Uh, lots of parents lost their job. There was instability. Um, lots of parents haven't seen their their uh, children haven't seen their grandparents back home in such a long time. So the system is stressed, and so the children are stressed. Um, and I, I'd hate to say the, this, but I I was really uh, feeling like at one point the children are not okay. Um, there was a lot of cases being transferred to us as therapists, as clinicians. We were overworked, and we we were close. To to burn out because ask any psychologist in town, you 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 won't be able to find a, an appointment with them because cases were just really really flowing. So yes, we we saw an increase in in the amount of cases, especially in anxiety cases, being referred to us. Is there a certain age group that this uh, symptom seems to affect the most? Uh, and no. Uh, we saw uh, an increase in developmental cases uh, and anxiety separation, anxiety from cases in very little ones. And we saw an increase in anxiety in the teenage uh, years because, of course, um, they were spending lots of time indoors, lots of time in front of screens. Um, all the happy, healthy hormones that you get from going outside, being in nature, uh, exercising, socializing, uh, that was all cancelled. And everything was in front of a screen. So these kids... Um, had a very limited social interaction, very limited exercise, and we saw a huge increase even in the teenage years in issues like anxiety, depression, uh, social skills deficit, learning difficulties, reading difficulties, you name it, we saw it. So, I mean, 
Well, everyone basically agrees that the UAE had what, you know, if you can call it that, a good pandemic in that, you know, they were back to school reasonably quickly by September. There was no sort of toing and froing, at least in Dubai, as far as schools starting and then closing and then starting and then closing. And also, of course, the, the risk of disease abated pretty quickly because, you know, so many people got vaccinated so quickly. So, In some ways, you wouldn't think that young people here in the UAE should be as anxious as their counterparts in different countries. Are are there specific things that are making children anxious? You know, are they worried about how they appear? Are they worried about getting ill? What is it that they're worried about ultimately? Yeah, so definitely we are so lucky in Dubai. We're very, very lucky because I felt like the government handled it really well. When it when we needed to be strict, they were strict. When we needed to let loose, they loose. We were one of the first countries that let the kids back, that, uh, you know, stop the bubbles. They're very quick to react because don't forget, we've never been in this place before. We've never had a global pandemic that can affect us in so many ways. We were all like battling in the dark here. Um, so they were very quick to re- react to different situations. And and the KHDA and, and DHA worked really well together. But still, still, we're social beings. These kids um, who were cooped up, the kids that were born in the pandemic, um, who, who 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 felt for a whole year that it was unsafe for them to go to play areas, to playgrounds, and um, it was unnatural for them. The children who were born with masks, um, you know, I was speaking to uh, my colleague, a speech and language therapist, and and you know, sometimes he's in sessions, he would lower his mask down to show his, you know, the, his facial reactions, and the child would pull the mask up because there's the children are so used, they were born in a time when adults wore masks. So just these issues definitely um, uh, brought about uh, challenges. Now, you're asking me, what are the children scared of? Well, as parents um, and as uh, uh, teachers, we had to be very careful. We had to say, sanitize your hands, wash your hands, wear a mask. Um, So we kind of created a fear, um, fear in them of the coronavirus. And of course, as I said, they generalize this fear. So something bad is happening. The world is not safe. As soon as a child feels that the world is not safe, anxiety is going to hit. It's going to come through. Now, sometimes it's going to be social anxiety. It's anxiety from social situations. And sometimes it's going to be generalized anxiety, anxiety from everything in general. I worry about going into the car. I worry about exams. I worry about having a chat with a friend. Um, and usually when we say anxiety, uh, it's it's predictable fears. It's fears that are um, that come constantly at, uh, around the same kind of issues or areas. And it can be seen in, in different ways in, ch- in different children. Really interesting to speak to you there, uh, Dr. Jara. Thank you so much for your time and for those insights. Uh, and we are going to be turning our attention next uh, to another parent uh, who has uh, a child who's struggled with anxiety. Uh, so it'd be really interesting to potentially get your views on that as well. We'll let you go. Uh, but maybe if you have time to, to stay on the radio, we could get your comments uh, afterwards. Uh, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. Likewise, thank you for having me. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Now, a very interesting study has just been published out of the UK. Uh, The National Institute for Economic and Social Research suggests that the youngest children have been most affected by lockdowns and closures during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, with new research finding that the educational progress and social development of four- and five-year-olds suffered severely during their first year at school. Things like aggressive behaviour, biting and hitting, and feelings of struggling in class or being overwhelmed around large groups of children were among the difficulties reported by teachers during the interviews. That all plays in to the topic that we are discussing on the radio today, which is that one-fifth of children worldwide have anxiety symptoms that are clinically elevated or worse than what's considered normal. Now, I'm joined in the studio now uh, by a mother of several children uh, who has indeed experienced this scenario. Thank you so much for joining us on the line. Do introduce yourself. Hi, Georgia. I'm Suman, uh, Suman Manning, and I'm a mum of three 12-year-olds. Three girls and a boy. Three 12-year-olds. Triplets then. (laughs) That's my clever guess for today. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, triplets. 
So tell me a little bit about uh, what your experience has been. Are your children struggling with anxiety in the same way as uh, one fifth of children, uh, well, showed showed symptoms at least from this survey? Well, the way I would put it is, I mean, obviously we we've got three, so we compare and. Between the three of my children, we've noticed and we're actually able to label it as anxiety because in, in, when she was little, um, she was called different things. So, you know, we labeled it as being shy, as being um, withdrawn or a bit of uh, more of an introvert. But as the kids have grown, we've been able to see that um, Zara suffers from anxiety and actually talk to her about it and address it as such. And that's actually given us a lot of, um, I would, yeah, I think, you know, being able for us to manage it better because we now know what it is that we're dealing with. It is amazing that because you've got three of the same age that you're able almost to sort of, you know, they're almost like case studies, I suppose. You know, they're having the same upbringing and you can see that maybe some children are just more prone to it than others. Do you think that the pandemic has played a part? Do you think that that has uh, preyed on your daughter's anxiety? I think when um, we were doing online distance learning is when we actually really realised the extent of it. And we were aware of her behavior change and actually just, uh, you know, how worried and anxious she was. Because um, before that, they spent a large amount of time at school and we weren't privy to the learning process and seeing how she uh, reacted or responded to a teacher or in a class environment with other kids. But when um, we had to do the, the online learning is when it really was amplified and you know, we really saw that it was hugely distressing for her to be in that environment. So two of them really got on with it. I had a son who um, is very laid back. So he was just, you know, able to, as in, you know, when we say we just just get on with it. But Zara needed that extra emotional support. She needed a lot more prepping mentally before the class started. So, you know, just to calm her down, to be able to, manage her expectations to talk about the day because as soon as the camera came on and the lesson started she would just shut down and you could just see that certain scenarios or subjects really amplified that anxiety there were tears there was irrational behavior it just wasn't her it was the camera the problem did she feel self-conscious in front of the camera or is it just that she it gets nervous in company. I think there were lots of different factors. And the fact that, you know, they were able to see each other, then the teacher was would would, would address one of them and they felt she felt really put on the spot, um, that she had to be able to answer or in a certain time frame or in a certain way. Other people were more confident, or if she didn't understand what was being taught, she didn't have the confidence to then ask or say, I don't understand this. So she was trying to just do it all herself. And I think really, really quite hard on herself, not understanding that everybody was struggling with this new method of learning and with this new way of of communicating, I guess, with um, your friends and your teacher. And it was a new class, a new teacher. So they didn't even have the time to you know, get to know each other in person, I think. So the distance that the um, online learning created was also a bit of a, of a hindrance because she didn't feel safe or um, know the teacher as well. So she had to kind of didn't want to be the one person not understanding or having to ask a question. So it was just tears and it was a kind of a mental block. And I think it was so hard for her to get over that yeah. and calm down. And so we had to do a lot of, I had to work on it to be able to teach her to calm down and just realize that, you know, let's not have to try and do everything at once. Gosh, my heart really goes out to her. And obviously it must have been frustrating for you as a mother because you're just so keen for them to access that education. Have you, apart from sort of working with her to calm her down, have you uh, come up with any other tools to help her with the anxiety itself? Uh, you know, is it easy to get advice on what to do as a mother? It, it, I had to do a lot of reading and obviously talking about it to other mums to just 
kind of understand. Um, and, and I think it was a good thing for her to be able to tell us how she was feeling. Because the first thing is, you know, as with any parent, you just want to make it all better or you want to just say, okay, you know, how do we fix this? But um, I think the thing that I had to learn and we all had to understand is that you can't take away this situation and she has to learn to cope rather than just saying, okay, well, how do we make this better? You know, do we just not attend classes online? And do we not just be in this situation? Because there is going to be a lot of situations that she's going to be uncomfortable with. And, and friendships is another thing. So after that, she moved from year six to year seven. So that's a whole new school. And, you know, secondary has also been really, really challenging. And that's where her anxiety has come in because she's gone from a very safe environment of being in the school for seven years to a completely new environment, much bigger school. And um, so it's, it's a constant evolving of the anxiety and trying to manage it rather than just being one situation and us trying to fix one issue. That makes sense. Oh, completely. Yeah, makes complete sense. And you've actually brought some real... Um You've brought some real clarity to the situation. And I really, Saman, I really appreciate you sharing your situation because I think there'll be people listening uh, and your sort of testimony will resonate with them and, and help them maybe in the situation that, that they're facing if they're also worried that their child uh, might be facing an- anxiety. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I wish you and your family all the best. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and welcome back to the programme now. We've been talking about the challenges of getting our kids into STEM subjects. But for some people, the hardest challenges don't stop them pursuing them. We have a very special guest joining us on the radio today. Uh, Zena has been catching up with him and is going to introduce this segment. Thank you, Georgia. We've been trying to track him down. We reported last week that a Syrian software engineer was crowned the winner of the $1 million Arab Coders Initiative in Dubai. His name is Mahmoud Shahoud. He fled the conflict in his country to search for a better life. Uh, he first went to Jordan before settling down in Turkey. He won the top fr- Top prize, of course, for developing the Habit 360 application. It's an app that helps people build new habits, track their progress, and stay motivated. Mahmoud Shahoud joins us live from Istanbul. How are you, Mahmoud? Good. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Congratulations, first of all. But let's go back to the start. Uh, can you describe to us your life as a refugee in Turkey and how you got there? Yeah. Uh, just to declare this word refugee, I'm not a refugee here in Turkey. Actually, I left Syria in uh, 2013 after I graduated from uh, my university, software engineering field. Uh, I moved to Jordan. Uh, I remained there around one year. Then I moved to Turkey. Now uh, I'm living in Turkey, in Istanbul. You are. So this is a journal in Turkey. You're officially a resident of Turkey. Now, how did you yeah. learn how to code? That was in Syria, I can imagine. Sorry? How did you learn how to code? How did you become a software engineer? You studied in Syria, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. As I told you, uh, I started uh, the IT field in 2007. Yeah, uh, I learned code the first time at that year. Uh, I loved that. It was hard at the beginning. But uh, after a few years, yeah, it's super easy. Uh, I was able to create small softwares, desktop apps. Uh, then I moved to create more apps, mobile apps. Uh, yeah, in, in general, the beginning always becomes uh, easier when you uh, practice more. Now, uh, you're one of the lucky ones, of course. Now there are many children who are kind of struggling in STEM subjects, especially those children who probably don't have enough resources. Uh, What can you tell those children who are probably not motivated enough or don't have the same opportunities such as yourself? Yeah, yeah. I think now on the Internet, there are lots of resources that kids can learn the coding. I recommend the Apple website. They have uh, a course to teach kids how to code using a modern programming language, it's a Swift programming language. 
So uh, I recommend it. And actually, I teach my kid uh, that language. It's easy. Uh, it uh, helps kids to build small games, actually, uh, by that language. So at the beginning, the kids uh, could feel it's strange playing a new thing to build games. But uh, after a few months, yeah, they will be able to create games. Thank you for that. Now, tell us about your app, Habit360. I like the sound of it. It helps people build new habits, track their progress, and stay motivated. What inspired you to build that app? How does it work, very briefly? Yeah. Uh, in 2020, when the COVID started, actually, uh, I wanted to create some new habits in my life. Uh, I searched for some apps on the App Store. I didn't find the app that I want. I wanted uh, some uh, features, uh, didn't find them. So uh, I said to myself, yeah, I'm a programmer, so I can create the app that combine all missing features. Uh, and I started building the app, the Habit360, at the February, I remember this, the first quarter of uh, 2020. Uh, I released the first version in 2021, the first quarter. Uh, the app in general, the idea, it helps uh, people to create a new good habits in their lives or if they want to eliminate bad habits, for example, smoking. Oh, that's a in really addition good to idea. That, in, yeah, in addition to that, uh, the app helps them to track their feelings and emotions. And at the end, the app suggests or recommends new actions, activities, or new habits to uh, reduce the, the, the impact of bad feelings. So the, the final goal is to reach to our happiness in our lives and to be productive. That is one of the things we're talking about, talking about anxiety among young people, especially here in the UAE. That's, some, that's an app that I will recommend to a lot of parents out there. Now, what is next for you? You have $1 million at your disposal, Mahmoud. What are you going to do with it? Yeah, as I said, uh, the half of that amount uh, I will give them to orphans in Syria that caused because of the war. The second part, uh, yeah, I want to complete building the iOS app of the Habit 360 because now it's available on the, uh, only on the Android OS. Now I'm building the iOS version. Uh, also, uh, I'm going to build the website for it and to support the Apple Watch. Well, thank in you. General, that for the Habit 360, and there are actually uh, other uh, self-development apps I'm planning to start with. So well. lots of big plans for you. Thank you so much, Mahmoud. He is, of course, the winner of the One Million Arab Coders Initiative in Dubai. Thanks for joining us from Istanbul. Thanks so much. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to U7. Hello there, welcome back. Now, if you'd like your child to appreciate the arts then uh, and get involved, then this is one for you because the Jamil Arts Centre in Dubai has always had a robust youth programme, but it's recently launched something they're calling a youth takeover. They've commissioned emerging artists to come up with artworks and everyone is welcome to view them. Joining me now to discuss it further is Daniel Ray. He is the curator of the youth takeover for 2022. He joins me live on Microsoft Teams. Hi, Daniel. How are you? Hi, Georgia. Everything good. Thank you for having me today. It's an very excited to share. Good. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. What is the Youth Takeover? Tell me more. The platform is yours. Thank you. So it is in the name. What we're doing is we're flooding the Jamil Art Center, every corner, every space, even two gallery spaces with artworks, with immersive experiences and with events that will run over the next um, three weeks. Just before I, I joined the call, uh, you were playing Paradise by Coldplay. And I think this is the promise that we're coming with, that this is a creative paradise, not only for young people, but also for, for, child, for children and for childhood um, as a theme. Because what we're doing in this exhibition that you take over called Small is we're inviting people to connect with their inner child. We're inviting young people to feel even younger. And we're inviting children to have one of their first experiences with contemporary art at the Jamil. 
Fantastic. Now, is the artwork done by adults or is it also done by children? That's an, ex an excellent question. There is Most of the artworks are done by youth under 25 years old. Cool. But actually, what, what, what you see, be it in, in our posters or in a few of the different details that have been added to the works, is that they have been made by kids age four, five, and six years old that are connected to the different members of our youth programs. You also have different creative portals in our usual lockers at the center that have paintings that the artists did when they were seven years old. So there is there is a bit of a timeline of, of how we've become and how we've grown up creatively here in the UAE. And how are you engaging with the children? Are they are there interactive exhibitions? Do they, you know how children nowadays are so used to seeing everything on iPads? Do, you know, is there a bit of a pop going on? Absolutely. So um, we do have a specialized tour for children happening on the weekend of June 4th. All the information is on jamilartcenter.org. And in terms of the actual experiences, I mean, we have a super immersive library with children's books that people can access parents with kids, kids with parents. In terms of the exhibition, we have places that can be intervened with chalk on the walls for kids to play with. There is also artworks that have been placed at a floor level and have been mounted at a much lower eye level for kids to have a much more face-to-face, -face, much more frontal interaction with these pieces. And there, there are also sound activations and toys placed in different parts of the Jamil. So we're really speaking to a much broader demographic. We're speaking to the kid who wants to come enter a museum for the first time, and we're speaking to the adult that you know needs to make that inner journey to, to the child it wants wear. Okay, you got me excited. I've got a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. When, where, how long for? Perfect. The Jamil Youth Takeover is um, already on view and it runs until Sunday, June 5th. Um, the Jamil Art Centre is open uh, to the public Mondays, sorry, Mondays and then Wednesdays uh, through Sundays too. Um, we're open daily. Again, we have programmes happening literally almost every day over the next three weeks super ready for you, for example, to come with your kids and to really, really have a full-on experience um, with us during the daytime as well as in the early evenings. Amazing. Daniel, thank you so much. That was short but sweet. It was lovely to have you on the radio. Uh, Daniel Ray, the curator of the Youth Takeover 2022. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.